This episode is brought to you by The Daily Cardinal, UW-Madison's independent student newspaper. And I'm really scared that this election is just going to be the end of our democracy. I don't see it going a good way, whatever happens, and I think that's scary. I'm Gabby Vinick. And I'm Joe Mitchell. Your co-host for The Student Dive. A podcast where we speak directly to UW-Madison student reporters, editors, and Wisconsinites. We talk about the most pressing issues in our campus, city, and state communities. Let's dive right in. Today, we're discussing youth voter suppression in the state of Wisconsin. Researchers at Tufts University predict that the youth vote in Wisconsin will have the largest impact on the outcome of the presidential election. This is based on prior turnout and how close the race was four years ago. Sherea Bandiopadiai is a UW-Madison junior and an Andrew Goodman Foundation ambassador, working to educate young people about their right to vote. She's a political science major and is one of many students worried about misinformation campaigns and efforts aimed at suppressing youth voter turnout. I was looking for a job over the summer, and then um, Tamia, one of my friends, she's an Andrew Goodman Foundation ambassador here and also like the Big Ten Voting Challenge intern. Um, from the Mortgage Center, and so she, like, let me know about this opening with this, the foundation, and so I applied, and then I got it, and that was super cool. But I think, honestly, like, my passion for voting and, like, my interest in the position came, honestly, after I had already gotten it, because, like, I'm not saying, like, I wasn't interested in voting in elections before, like, obviously, I'm a poli-sci kid, so, like, I've always been interested. I just, I always felt like I didn't know enough about voting to be a voting intern that advocates for voting rights for others. I think that comfortability, that's not a word, comfortableness and um, accessibility came after I got the position and learning more about the ways that youth have been disenfranchised, all of these different barriers that block people from casting their ballot and actually having it counted made me really passionate about the cause. And like, um, yeah, it just made me like really fired up for this upcoming election and working with the foundation. When you said the voter disenfranchisement can you tell me more about that what you've learned so far about it yeah for sure so I mean obviously there's gerrymandering which means political gerrymandering and then there's racial gerrymandering um racial gerrymandering has been uh banned by the supreme court it's been ruled unconstitutional for some reason they've not done that with political gerrymandering even though I think those two verge on each other like very close to being the same thing just because they both target minority groups because minority groups such as like black asian latino different things like that different categories like that are more likely to vote for progressive policies through political gerrymandering you're essentially also doing racial gerrymandering and that's just my opinion and then obviously like youth are impacted by that if it's a minority youth and they're living in um, a district that's been heavily gerrymandered that would mean that their vote doesn't count as much um, because that vote will probably turn red or blue either way. And local gerrymandering is done by both parties. It's not one or the other. So I think that's definitely really problematic. And I think probably what's more impactful on youth vote is just the lack of information. Because I think one thing that everybody that we've talked to on our podcast has said, if it's your first time it's going to be more difficult because you don't have a precedent for it. You don't know what to do because you've never done it before. Like, obviously going to my vote, registering to vote absentee. If you're from a different state, figuring out how to register in Wisconsin, Wisconsin has the strictest voting ID laws. 
figuring out all of those different things and then finally getting your ballot and remembering to mail it in with the correct signatures and everything. It's a lot to ask of a college student who has two exams coming up on Thursday. I think that's a really important thing. Keeping the education and accessibility to the ballot box out there, talking about it gets in the public consciousness, and that means that more and more people will feel more emboldened and more able to go through those hoops and finally get their ballot. But I think also another thing with that is because it's so hard, our youth voter turnout is so low, but then it's also been warped. This new narrative has been pushed out where, oh, the youth don't care. That's why their vote is so low. And then youth take that to mean like their vote doesn't matter. And so I think it's just a really vicious circle of different propaganda trying to get rid of the youth vote. And I think what's so important is to realize that if they're trying to take away your voice and your vote, if it's this difficult to cast your ballot, it's for a reason. It's because your vote matters so much that they're trying to take it away. What role do young people play in protecting democracy with in terms of their ability to vote and the impact that we can make in the 2020 election? Yeah, so I think you hit on it. It's, um, like Wisconsin is the number one state for youth voter influence kids if you are registered in states that you know are going to go blue or red vote in wisconsin i think that's such an important thing to get out there and then also with that to answer your question directly youth voter influence is so important because youth are voting for their futures i think what's so frustrating to me and i'm sure a lot of other kids is that they're just seeing these old white men in positions of power making policies that will affect us And that doesn't make sense to me. If our entire government was built on the idea of equal representation, and it's the people who are in positions of power, and these representatives are meant to represent our voices, why are they only representing their own? This wasn't, this was never meant to be an aristocratic sort of deal, but here we are. And I think that's because of the the importance placed on old people's voices, which isn't meant to say that like old people's voices don't matter. I just think we should be weighting them equally. If youth are the ones to suffer the consequences of climate change, racial injustice, sexism in the workplace, all of these different things, I'm not quite sure why we are allowing our elected officials to be these old white men. And so also, I think another really important statistic is that people from the silent generation are ironically much more vocal in elections. They vote so much more than young people, and that's showing in who our elected representatives are. So I just think it's so important that youth recognize their power and the power in their vote, and that if they want these changes, and if they're demanding these policies in the streets from these amazing protests that we've been seeing, you have to get the other side of that too, and that's voting. And I know I know how frustrating it is to hear that, just because I think we've 2020 has just been one knockdown after the other. Like we keep on saying, go vote, protest, do all of these different things. And I think it's really unfair that kids have been told that it's up to us to change the world while also studying for our midterm tomorrow. I mean, like, I don't think any other generation has had to deal with so much pressure. The world is ending. It's on you to fix it. Go vote and protest. But here we are. You know, like, I don't, I don't think we have better solutions. And so we just have to work with the frameworks that we're given. Unless you want to start the new constitution on a Google Doc. What, what do you think it will take to get high voter turnout in a pandemic? 
Yeah, I think that's a really tough question, and it's been one that the Badgers Vote Coalition has been trying to, like, grapple with this entire time, and I think, for me, it's just education. You can't have anything go right unless people know. Because poll workers can't process the absentee ballots until the day of the election, does that worry you at all? Like, what are you worried about, if anything? Oh, yeah, no, I'm so, 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 so worried. I think we're really lucky in Madison because our city county clerk's office is amazing. I want to shout them out so much to anybody who will listen because I think they're just so incredible. Meredith Wetzel Wetzel Bell, who is our uh, Madison City County Clerk, is just the most incredible woman. And she's so passionate about voting and just making sure that every single vote matters. It doesn't matter who you voted for. She wants your vote counted. And they're doing everything that they can to make sure that happens. And they're working so hard with the Badgers Vote Coalition. They're at every single meeting. And just, like, answering our questions, giving us updates, being so open and honest about and transparent about their records and, like, different things that they're doing. So I think I'm less worried about Madison. I'm more worried about different counties may not be as passionate or maybe not, maybe don't have the resources and different things like that. I'm also worried about election night. I don't think we're going to get the results on that night. And I am so, 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 so scared about the different civil and racial unrest that's going to be happening because there's just going to be a lot of misinformation and we, I, I think it's difficult on who to trust. I know we feel tired and exhausted and there's compassion fatigue and we're just we're sick of it. I think every single person that I have talked to is just I'm sick of it. I agree like I'm 100% with you but I think you have to stay energized and radicalized and ready until November 3rd. You can't let what's happening get the better of you. We do we're just as complicit in our exhaustion. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I think, like, we have to use our voices and keep that energy and passion and use, using this power that we're creating from protests and turning that into policy at the ballot boxes. Recently, court battles have flip-flopped the rules of when votes will be counted or when you can request absentee ballots here in Wisconsin. This has just added more confusion to a generation of youth voters who are just trying to get the hang of voting in the first place. It's a complicated story, and I talked to Nathan Denson, a Cardinal reporter, to straighten it out. I got Nathan Denson. You did a piece on Republican lawmakers appealing to 7th District Court on extensions of ballot counting after the election. Do you want to talk about what happened there? Yeah, so this is really a long, a really long running case um, that kind of dates back to the uh, April primary election. Um, And so what happened is we actually saw there, um, I feel like everybody knows, really huge lines uh, and a lot of really big problems that happened due to the COVID pandemic. There were a lot of polling stations that got closed and a lot of people just had a lot of problems. So the Democratic National Committee um, and a few other organizations, including the Disability Rights Wisconsin and Black Leaders Organizing Committees, which is referred to as BLOC, um, came together and they drafted a more like a resolution, kind of read as a lawsuit, and they submitted it as a lawsuit to courts, and they wanted to change a whole bunch of different ways that Wisconsin would run for the presidential election this year, uh, or this November. What they wanted, they wanted um, initially for absentee ballots to be sent to anybody who is registered automatically, uh, anybody registered to vote automatically, so that more people would have the access to vote and more people wouldn't have to go online to 
uh, register to to get that applic or to get that um, ballot. They would just get it automatically. They wanted to extend the deadline for absentee registration or for voter registration for an extra week. And then they wanted to extend the deadline for absentee ballots to be taken in by um, polling locations and counted as long as they were postmarked on or before November 3rd, which is the actual election. So this lawsuit was brought by the DNC and others way back in April, and it was ruled on by a judge on September 21st, um, Judge William Conley. And he kind of ignored some, some of the other um, things that Democrats wanted, including the app or automatic sending of ballots to voters ended up being declined by judges and for other reasons. But the extension for both absentee deadline and voter registration ended up sticking. And so this judge, William Conley, ended up ordering an issue to extend both the absentee deadline and the voter registration deadline so that poll locations could basically count any of the, uh, any of the mail that they get from voters after the election ends and, and still be able to count those. A similar rule was actually allowed in the August primary, which saved something like 70,000 um, Wisconsin votes uh, from being cast. So this decision was made to extend all the deadlines to award a win to the Democrats. And Republicans then immediately did what they have been doing recently in Wisconsin and decided to appeal it to another court to take another lawsuit, basically. And they appealed this time to the Seventh Circuit Court. Their basis of the lawsuit was basically that it's illegal to make these changes so soon towards the election. What they wanted was for um, changes, these changes that, that Democrats proposed to actually be enacted way back in April or in May, instead of them being enacted in September. So they bring this lawsuit, this appeal to the Seventh Circuit Court, and the Circuit Court initially suspends the ruling. So it's suspended for a little while in September and then comes back and they actually rule in favor of the Democrats, again, against the Republicans' appeal because of lame duck laws that Republicans themselves imposed back in 2018. So, so that, that's where I found it. It was in its, its what is it, the, that'd be the second phase, um, I guess mm -hmm. technically the third phase because there were some portions of the initial lawsuit filed in April that were kind of shaved off over the summer through the course of litigation. And then this first ruling came in September in favor of Democrats. Republicans then decided to appeal that to the Seventh Circuit Court, who then initially decided to stay um, the order by the, by the initial judge, by Judge William Conley, who was the one who ordered um, the initial September 21st. So, so they appealed Conley's decision, basically. So the Circuit Court decided that they would indeed stay the, this opinion while they were working on it. The, the, uh, the decision remained um, up in the air basically for about three days until the circuit court came back and they decided to reinstate Conley's initial ruling. So the second win for the Democrats. The reason being that these lame duck laws that I kind of mentioned earlier, Republicans passed as uh, Governor Scott Walker was leaving office, basically to help ensure that when Governor Tony Evers would get into power, that Republicans would still have essentially all control over the government, other than some things that they basically couldn't take away from the governor. So one of these laws defined what lawsuits state legislators could and could not bring to court. 
they could in in through through this legislation that they passed in 2018 lawmakers can bring lawsuits that are on behalf of themselves to court so if there was a lawsuit if, if there was a single legislator who had a complaint about something specific that harmed them they could bring it to the state court however they said that lawmakers cannot sue on behalf of the state so that means that lawmakers can't say this is something that the legislature or the governor does did and it's hurting the state so therefore we would like to sue to get rid of it they basically they, they hamstrung themselves they did not give themselves that power yeah it sounds like it came back to bite them a little bit right yeah they basically their the thought process was that democrats would eventually try to sue in the state's interest to um basically undo some republican laws and so that was kind of the reason that they added it in there and yeah, it ended up totally biting them when the circuit court made this decision. Yeah. So what do the Republicans decide to do? So these Republicans decided that they <laughs> would again appeal this seventh circuit court's decision. However, you can't get higher from this circuit court other than the Supreme Court. And they didn't think yet that they had a strong enough case to bring it to the Supreme Court. So what they did, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, not the United States Supreme Court. So what they did was instead of taking it directly to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, they decided to appeal the Seventh Circuit Court's decision to the Seventh Circuit Court again. However, this time they had a slightly different, slightly different wording and they had the Wisconsin Supreme Court weigh in on the case. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court didn't actually decide on it, but they did weigh in um, sometime last week on if legislators had the power to sue for state interests. And the Wisconsin State Court, because it's controlled right now by a 4-3 conservative majority, came back and decided that these legislators actually these legislators actually did have the power to sue on behalf of the state. So that makes this case completely different. It goes from one where the court, the Seventh Circuit Court can't hear it because the legis the, the plaintiffs had no standing in the first place. It goes from that to the plaintiffs have standing now is what they're saying correct it is what they're saying agreeable when it comes to interpreting the law so what was the wisconsin supreme court's judgment on the case what gave the plaintiffs new standing to go back to the appeals court yep so the supreme court and it, it wasn't a ruling so it wasn't anything actually uh, hold on that's a lie. it okay. was a ruling that's a lie don't listen to me it was a ruling um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so no that ruling they, they decided on because, uh, they had never actually ruled on this before. It was just something that the legislature had passed. It was the first time it was brought before the Supreme court. And they basically just decided that the, the wording was vague enough in the law that state legislatures could argue on behalf of the state. So they just expanded okay. the powers that state legislatures had to sue essentially. Okay. And then what were, I understand that the party chairman in Wisconsin, the Republican party chairman in Wisconsin, Andrew Hilt, weighed in on it and you talked a little bit about it in your uh, story. What did he have to say? Yeah, so his argument was pretty much what the conservative argument has been throughout this lawsuit, is that they're worried that all of these changes that again had first been put in place in late September worried that all of these changes were too close to the election. 
So he talked about how he's worried about voter confusion, about when you can and cannot send in your absentee ballot, worrying that if this deadline was extended, people would wait to send in their mail until the 9th, misunderstanding what the rule actually is. He was worried about election officials having to change their rules and their procedures. And he's worried about potential litigation that could happen down the road because of all these changes. And I imagine that's Republican lawmakers' argument across the country ruling on these these issues. Yep. So there's a whole bunch of issues that are waging right now in the courts. There's some in Minnesota. There's some in Michigan. All over the country, especially in the Midwest. And election officials are basically saying we cannot change our elections just because of a pandemic because we did not take the time to change all these processes over the spring and summer. Do you want to talk about uh, what happened recently with the court rulings? So when the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that state legislatures did indeed have the grounds to bring this lawsuit to the court, the Seventh Circuit Court had to reevaluate, reexamine it in this new light. Um, And they actually decided recently in a a 2-1 decision that the initial ruling by William Conley that extended the deadline for absentee ballots and for voter registration could not be upheld. And so they, they overturned the decision and the absentee ballot deadline is now again, 8 p.m. November 3rd on election night. The ruling means that even if your ballot is sent say on November 2nd before the election, if it's received on November 5th by the polling place, it will not count. Your ballot has to be in the hands of election officials by 8 p.m. on November 3rd for it to count, period, end of story. This is not the end of the story yet. Just hours after I talked to Nathan on Monday, the Supreme Court of the United States weighed in. They ruled in a 5-3 decision that ballots received after November 3rd will not be counted. This, upholding the lower court's decision made previously. So, for now, this is the end of the story. Kathy Kramer, a UW-Madison political science professor and author of the award-winning book, The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness and the Rise of Scott Walker, believes it may take more outreach to inform students about deadlines and registration necessities. Kramer said it will take a collective effort to help one another understand how to exercise their right to vote. I have a variety of concerns. One is, and again, here I'm thinking in particular about Wisconsin, where our trajectory with respect to COVID cases is not good. And if things, it looks like they're plateauing a bit, but if things continue to get worse through election day, I am concerned that people are going to make the calculation of it's not really worth it to go to the polls. I don't want to risk getting COVID. I worry about misinformation campaigns, whether we're talking Russian interference or people who want to depress turnout. We know it happened in 2016 and it's likely to happen again in in 2020. I'm also worried a bit about intimidation Um, at the polls. Currently, things seem to be changing by the day. (laughs) What are your thoughts right now on the political mood as it pertains to young people on campus and the state of the election and, you know, the events that are leading up to it? 
Well, see, the mood, I would say, among UW students is pretty positive. It's a little bit hard to read since we're not really together. From online traffic, it seems like there's really high engagement with this election, just really high interest in it and definitely people seeking information and getting registered, requesting an absentee ballot. Kramer also has a few thoughts on barriers to the ballot box. Historically, you're right, younger people do tend to vote at lower rates. And I think there's probably two big explanations for that. One is that it's, I mean, anytime you're doing something that you're unfamiliar with, that level of uncertainty can be a barrier, right? So everything from how do I register to where do I vote or what do I actually do when I walk into the polling place, that just the unknown can inhibit people from participating. So that that's part of it. But also I think part of it is, I, I don't want to overstate this, but until you are living on your own, employed, but there's a way in which a lot of policies don't seem, their effect on you isn't as obvious as when you start paying taxes or employed full-time. And so just the the importance of participating in an election just is not always as obvious to young people. They see themselves as invisible to the political process. And unfortunately, I think, and I should say this is probably a third factor, that is often true, right? A lot of times policymakers are not talking to young people or to the things that concern them. And there's no good excuse for that other than it's a horrible chicken and egg problem where elected officials know that young people don't vote as at, as at high of rates. And so they don't speak to their concerns as often as the people they know are going to show up at the polls. And it's sort of the cycle kind of perpetuates itself. But I think that is one thing that public officials can do, which is to be more vocal about recognizing the issues that concern young people and showing that they are listening and actually following through with policy proposals that might have a big impact on their lives. Like the college-going young people part of the population, there are a variety of things that could be done with respect to college funding and college loans. But even beyond people who are in college, like just addressing their concerns with the labor market would be would be huge, right? But another thing would be to not make it so difficult for young people to vote. Instead of putting in place additional hurdles, to re- to as much as possible reduce the hurdles that are there because until you vote for the first time, that the challenges in your way just make it less likely that you will ever spend the energy to figure out what needs to be done in order to cast your vote. Why is this notion of voter fraud brought up so frequently? Great question. Well, I don't think there's any way to describe it other than it's a partisan strategy. It's pretty obvious that there is next to no evidence of voter fraud and attempts to increase the concern about voter fraud support efforts to make it harder to vote, which the Republican Party in general believes works in their favor. There's a perception 
that the easier you make it to vote, the more it will benefit Democratic candidates. And so I really think, unfortunately, that the communication about voter fraud is just part of a a, a partisan strategy to implement things like voter ID legislation. What do you think it's going to take to get high turnout during a pandemic? Yeah, a lot of community effort. (laughs) I mean, it takes so much. It basically takes good, clear communication about what you need to do to register, to get your voter ID, and to request an absentee ballot. And then on the day of, if there are people still who have not voted early or voted by absentee, making it clear that there are safety measures in place and that voting in person is still possible and that the risk of contracting COVID is minimized as much as possible. When I say community effort, it just takes many different people helping others understand what they need to know in order to exercise their right to vote and to reassure people that it's still, that it's a legitimate process. How do you think people will vote this year? Do you think more people will vote by mail than in person? Good question. It's possible. There's so many people voting by mail this year, I mean, way more than any other election. Will it be a majority? In Wisconsin, yes, I think it will. I'm not so sure about nationwide. If you had the power to communicate to every single young person in the country, what would you tell them? What do you wish young voters knew? Uh, That, unfortunately, if you ignore democracy and don't exercise your right to vote, it will go away. If you want to make sure that you have the ability to live in a democracy for the rest of your life, it's really important that you exercise your right to vote and have your voice heard.